UK Motor Talk. Evening everyone, well I say evening because of course like always we have no idea when you're listening to us, could be morning, could be afternoon, could be evening, night or whenever, but we are back for another cobbled together uh, Zoom meeting of a podcast. Good evening everybody. Good evening. Hello, so we had Graham there first and we've also got Jim as well, so you are stuck with the three of us um, for the next however long this podcast in, insert amount of time here. 51 minutes and 17 seconds since you were asking... The news. Did anyone see any of the virtual Le Mans 24 hours? No. 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 Well, I did. Um, <laughs> and I'm a fan of Le Mans, as I think we may have said in the past. But it is fantastic if you've got the opportunity to go. In fact, it's not really expensive to us. You get a tent, get some friends together, get a load of beers together. But not cheap this year, driving, wasn't it? Obviously. <laughs> yep. Be prepared to be flooded out of your tent, but definitely go because it is a cracking weekend. Get the barbecues on. I, I, I don't really want to say banter, but you know, you get the idea. Fantastic fun to watch. Standing on the corner, head down the end of the Mulsanne Strait, watching all the uh, brake discs on the cars glow at night time, or being on the on the wheel watching the cars go out is incredible. What was less incredible for me was watching the virtual race, of which I watched ten minutes and then realised I got bored of watching somebody playing a video game. Now, <laughs> I... I can yeah, echo I, that. Yeah, it's, it's quite interesting to a point watching someone do it, but it's a bit like if you're in an arcade and you're waiting to have you go, you've got, <laughs> you've got your pound down on the side and you're just watching someone go around, you think, yeah, okay, this is good. And basically, I think it would have been better if you could just log in and join. <laughs> just join, just go sideways, taking people out or something, I think. It would be very entertaining for me. Well, I think there was a um, uh, an event, I forget which game it was in, it might have been uh, F1 2018 or 2019, where uh, they tried to stage it so that the, the race as it was being run, the Grand Prix as it was being run, was um, uh, the data from that was fed into the game, so you could drive a race and try and keep up or overtake or do whatever with whatever was happening. You had no effect on the race. You could take your own line and just drive around, etc. But That's try and keep brilliant. pace with the leaders in real time, and that that was actually quite cool. That was a little bit immersive, and uh, and you could have a go and compare yourself to real life, which uh, which I thought was quite interesting. Did you ever play Toka? The, the Toka yes. Toy? That was exceptional. Although, weirdly enough, I never played the touring cars section of Toka that much. I think it was in Toka 2. They had uh, Formula, was it Formula Ford, little single-seaters, obviously follow the, the Toka package around at the time. Uh, and those were brilliant fun. Little single-seaters, no wings, uh, little tiny slick tyres. They, they were great fun to drive those, especially in the See, wet. I used to, it always used to, I never bothered with those, I'll be honest, I always used to race the tin tops. But what, when I say race, <laughs> I, I say it's very loosely, because what would have happened was you'd go into a corner, realise you were going far too fast, and just use the car on the outside of the corner, just to whack into, and then carry on driving up the hill as your bumper's hanging off. And you just carry on going, picking up more and more damage, but just smashing into it. It was always more like, um, it was like a banger race, than it, <laughs> than it was a proper touring car race. And I'd just be too tempted to do that, I think. Or oh, that's how Matt Neal goes touring car racing, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> There's definitely a few of them that go out there more than rubbing as they go around. They just give each other a little love nudge, don't they, and just smash each other's suspension to bits. Yeah, I think he and Mr Plato are the uh, 
the arch criminals in that respect because they spend more time running into each other than running around each other. But when it's virtual, you kind of don't really care if it's, if it's just a game. Let's face it, people are taking virtual racing seriously because there isn't much more we can do about it at the minute until races properly restart, which is, is very soon, actually, isn't it? Races have properly restarted already, in fact, haven't they? That's this weekend just gone? Uh, yes, we've had a few indie cars got, uh, got up and running, hasn't it? Did anyone watch that just to, to watch some real-life motorsport? No I, no, I didn't, I'm afraid. <laughs> Good. <laughs> so for, for, for a group of motoring enthusiasts, the, uh, the, the first bit of real-life racing and an iconic bit of virtual racing were both completely passed us by then. Well, it didn't pass us by. I mean, I, yes, I certainly missed the Indy cars, which I would have liked to have seen. I, I'd quite like to watch that, but I just couldn't grasp the concept of a virtual Le Mans. I, like Michael was saying, I love Le Mans. It's, it's just a fabulous race. Just, it's like no other. It, it, it is. It's, it's like no other. It's been going for a very long time. You can drive part of it. Anybody can, because part of it's yeah. on a public road. And I've driven mm-hmm. that road south a number of times. And just some fabulous drivers uh, over the years have, have won that race. I think the record is nine wins. You know, anybody that can do that is is a serious, serious racing driver. And yeah. the race has been fast for years. It's been 180 miles an hour way back, wasn't it? It really was. Oh, it's it's been over 200 miles an hour since probably the 30s. Late thirties, yeah. something like that. I mean, if you think those uh, those big Mercedes and Audi streamliners and so on, they were easily capable of doing two hundred miles an hour. But you've got to admit that it's quite impressive when they have to when they're able to, to clock up these speeds, towing a trailer with the walnuts in it. Um, because frankly, you really you really did have to have some serious stones to to, to be going along at, at that sort of pace in the cars from the thirties. Really, really did. <laughs> I can remember Derek telling me that, uh, Derek Bell, that uh, I think on the old Le Mans, before they put the chicanes in to slow it down, he said there was nothing to do at 240 plus. So, you know, he would take that time to adjust his gloves and just, you know, adjust his belts, make sure he was comfortable, because he didn't have anything to do. Quite extraordinary. And I think it used to be the the old Goodyear blimp, they they had the um, track positions indicator board that used to hang below that which was just above uh, the Molesan Strait. And, and he used to check that every, every lap, just to see, A, where he was and where various friends and colleagues were. How the hell you can focus on that 240-plus is just mind-blowing. After a while, does it just become 240 miles an hour is, is perfectly OK? I mean, I'm sure we all remember the first time we drove the cars, so the first time you were driving a car at 30 miles an hour, it felt quick, and then... You built the speed up and built the speed up, and then you drive at 70, it feels quick. The first time you do 100 miles an hour, it feels quick. The first time you're on track, it feels quick. But you get used to it. So, yeah, I'd, mm. I'd imagine after 24 hours of practice at doing 240 miles an hour, yeah, it probably felt felt quite normal. I'm not sure I'd want to be looking around too much or checking texts or tweets at that speed. I think <laughs> you'd, you'd kind of hope he kept at least half an eye on the road, just uh, in case somebody was broken down or something unusual was happening in front of him. But You kind of wonder, don't you, that, at that sort of speed, though, is it when you suddenly start doing 70 miles an hour, it's like when you come off a motorway and you're stuck in a 30 zone, you think, God, this is slow. And is there a point where you're yes. driving along and you're still doing 40 miles an hour and you take your harness off to try and get out? <laughs> I think that does that does happen quite a bit. Or if uh, if any of the uh, the drivers have to drive back from Le Mans to wherever they're going, get pulled over by the uh, the French police, they're doing 190 miles an hour, but thought they were doing about 30. There is again coming back to to Mr. Bell as a classic story of his wife saying to him, 
Uh, they were going back to the hotel, and uh, after the race, and his wife saying to him, Derek, don't you think we're going just a little bit too fast? I think he was doing 170 at the time. That was on, <laughs> on public roads, you know. He'd just gone into race mode, and, and um, I'm trying to think what it was. It was a Ferrari of some sort uh, that he was in, but... Yeah, uh, 170 miles an hour is perhaps a bit quick for public roads, although uh, in lockdown some people have been attempting to do just that. Well, in fact, someone did, and there was a, there's an Audi RS6 that got caught going down the M23 recently. When I say got caught, he didn't get caught at all. Um, he was doing 203 miles an hour down the M23. Saw that. Yeah. Um, and posted it all over the internet, and subsequently two people have been arrested for it, and, and quite rightly so, because... Yes, we all love speed and it has its place, but that sort of pace, it doesn't take much for someone 200 to... 200 miles an hour on public roads, that's... Yes. Yeah, madness. That's, that's, that's absolutely the, the roads, The roads in this country aren't built for that more than anything. Mm-hmm. I mean, having driven in Germany quite a few times, when you sat in something capable of it, to sit there at 150, 160, 170 miles an hour for uh, for mile upon mile at a time is is perfectly OK, because the roads are... Very wide, very flat, and and billiard table smooth. I think that to, to try and do two hundred miles an hour on British roads with the the lumps and bumps and potholes and twists, the the roads just simply mm. aren't up to it. Well, it just illustrates an adage that I've I've held for a very long time. There's no correlation between driving ability and the the ability to afford a very powerful car. An awful lot of people are are. Uh, I won't name footballers, but uh, an awful lot of people can buy very expensive motor cars. Uh, and then can't drive them to save their lives, and sometimes don't save their lives, or any anybody else around them is uh, is at risk. They're simply incompetence at the wheel. I'm, ple- I'm pleased you didn't name because I've no idea who they were. Um. <laughs> I was going to say I, uh, I also <laughs> won't name any footballers because I uh, I can't. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. We, we, we've all thought about it though. When you're driving along and you're doing 70 miles an hour or something, you think I've got another 100 miles an hour I could be doing right now. You can't you, you, you be quite nice, but then you just think oh, it's it's stupid because it doesn't take a lot for something to happen. And frankly, any any idiot can drive fast. I had a guy came flying up behind me the other day and went past just to prove a point, presumably. But then, if you're doing seventy miles an hour and the car going past you doing eighty miles an hour, it doesn't matter what it is; it's still going to go faster than you are. It's just that's just how it works. But it's to be able to drive it with precision and skill. And actually, if I was in a car with Derry Bell, and obviously. You, know, you wouldn't want to be doing that speed on, on, on public roads, but I would feel pretty safe with him because you think he's he's used to being able to drive those kind of speeds and incredibly capable of driving those kind of speeds. The problem is it just takes one idiot to pull out in front of you without looking. I've been lucky enough to, to have been driven by Derek several times and I think the fastest was about 180 at Silverstone in a Porsche 962, which is the fastest I've ever been in a car. But he's just so relaxed and laconic. And, and, and I remember him taking me around Goodwood in an old Jaguar, early 60s Jaguar, and coming in down 11th Street and saying, oh, uh, you know, I think the brakes are probably not going to make it this time. We may we may have a bit of a problem slowing down at the end. <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's just all so casual. You think, no, this guy knows exactly what he's doing. Exactly I, bet, uh, he's doing. I bet he didn't brake any earlier, did he? No. No. <laughs> <laughs> he, he knew there was a gravel trap at the end he knew what he was doing uh, well away from virtual side of things we we have to uh, admit that we have dug out the track car and uh, we almost literally had to dig it out battery is flat the brakes are, are rusted as hell because we parked it up not really expecting 
to leave it that long. And it looked a bit sad, didn't it, uh, Jim? It's looking a bit faded. And we thought, oh, I think it's about time that we go new livery. In fact, we've put some pictures of it now. So if you go to UK Motor Talk, then have a look at the car. As it is at the moment, it's got just a base blue stripe down the middle and down the side of the doors. And we've gone for our own sort of take on a, an iconic livery. I kind of like you to guess what it is. Um, so you can write to us because, you know, by the time we do the next podcast, we still probably wouldn't have received it. But it's UK Motor Talk uh, Towers, PO Box, whatever it is. And I'm sure that it'll probably get to us eventually, probably some point next year when we, or a few years down the line, when we decide to relivery it again. Or you can tweet us at UK Motor Talk or you can um, send us an email if you want to, because why not? It's, uh, it's a free country. Yes, yeah, so I'd like you to try and guess what it is, but we are working on it now. Not as we speak, because we're chatting to you, obviously. But you never know, we might, uh, might see if we can cobble together a little video so you can see what it is that we've been doing as well. I'm quite excited about it. Not as excited as Jim is about it, but I'm, I'm also quite excited about it. Um, <laughs> and we've been, we've been making stickers, haven't we? Or you've been making stickers, not me. Uh, yeah, well, it turns out it's, uh, it's quite tricky to, uh, to put on the livery as we uh, first did it. And it's also quite tricky to take it off as well, even after using probably about three gallons of uh, vinyl and glue dissolver and our heated pressure washer that we have at work trying to blast it all off at 90 odd 100 degrees. It was, uh, it was a good, what, three, four hours outside uh, toiling yes. away at that. But uh, got it all off eventually, uh, apart from the, the few little bits that we wanted to keep. And um, no, it did look, did look quite unusual to, uh, to take all the bright orange off it. But no, it should, uh, it should be rather nice when it's done. And it's, uh, it's a slightly simpler attempt at delivery. I think we, we plotted it out trying to avoid all the lumps and bumps and door handles and things. So it's uh, a little bit simpler, a little bit easier, but I think it should look a bit nicer for it. And uh, no, I'm very excited to, uh, to see it come together. But most of it seems to be in our usual fashion of well throw it on and line it up and see what happens but we've we've measured it this time haven't we we've taken measurements we and have worked things out so we we've done it sort of semi properly we yeah you you got a, a flat fish out so we could uh, we could do a design and we sat there and and worked out exactly what should go where and and it's kind of looking already like it is like we planned it i mean hopefully um it will look better than how we planned it who knows we don't know, but I will say this, wrapping is most certainly a real skill. And if you see people lay, especially when they do the sort of the printed designs, they're pretty incredible. And you, they sort of pull the, the vinyl about and everything else. It, it, it is a real skill to do and get it right. And like everything, we've, <laughs> we've had a go at getting it right. It looks, I think, pretty good. But it has taken us approximately five times longer than it would <laughs> take anyone professional to do it. So if you're listening and you're into vinyl wrapping or indeed cleaning off vinyl wrapping, fair play to you. It's a tough job and you deserve all the credit you get. Yeah, vehicle wrapping is, is one of those. I think it kind of did start out of a need for customisation, didn't it? For Larry designs or mm. something unusual finishes you couldn't actually achieve through, paint. through normal yeah. painting. Uh, or would be very complicated to paint. Uh, but actually, in terms of vehicle preservation, it's a, it's a phenomenal invention because you can you know wrap an entire vehicle from brand new, and the paintwork underneath it is protected from from everything: bird lime, stone chips, etc. Yeah. Even like scuffs or scrapes, the uh, the wrap can take the impact of it. And, uh, and mm. I dare say, if you had a plastic bumper that was wrapped, if, uh, if somebody bumped into it in a car park, you'd simply peel the wrap off reapply that particular bit and, and go again and any time you fancy a colour change you can get it redone and it preserves the value of the car underneath so no wrapping is a, a, a phenomenal invention that's that's come on quite a way in, in the last few years you might then never know that you've just bought an ex-police car 
once they've taken all the yeah. wrapping off. Right. Well, I, honestly, we we had um, what should we say emergency services style tape on parts of the car. It sort of had that seventies. If you remember the old seventies cop cars, or you've seen them before, sort of the jam sandwich as they call them, with the orange bit and the blue either side. It's kind of what we had on ours. Now, when we took the orange wrap off, the paintwork underneath it was brilliant. It came off really cleanly, and it looked pretty good. In fact, we were surprised <laughs> how good it looked underneath. But that that the, the reflective stuff, oh my goodness, that was just ridiculous, wasn't it? And that's what took approximately 78 gallons of tar and glue, vinyl remover and everything else, of just and pure scrubbing just to, just to get it off the car. Um, so I can't imagine having to, to, to de-Battenberg a police car. Well, I think the, the, the tape we'd used wasn't quite the um, the police car stuff, was it? It, it looked mm. very similar, but I think it certainly wasn't designed for the application that we used it for. But it, uh, no, it, it held up fairly well, and it was a, it was a good learning experience. If, if you're pressure washing at that sort of temperature, has the car shrunk? Well, it might <laughs> be well different sizes. You started off with a Focus, now you've got a Fiesta. Indeed, well, so if it was a Fiesta already, but perhaps a smaller one now. I mean, we—it's <laughs> a bit like SR seventy-one, like Blackbird, our car. You know, it goes so fast that the 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 thermal differences when it comes to a stop, it's bound to sort of sweat some power out the bottom of it, isn't it? <laughs> Interesting concept. Right, I think we need mm. to move on. We were expecting in the automotive world and industry that we were going to have an electric car scrappage scheme. Now, we were also expecting that to be announced on the 6th of July. However, news from inside the government said, no, they're not going to do it, which is a real shame because actually quite like the idea of there being another scheme that allows you to get uh, sort of green and newer cars. And you just hope that it takes some of the stuff that's more boring off the road. Um, <laughs> I don't know, Peugeot's, Fox Lastra's. <laughs> Volvos, yes, I know. No, not uh, Volvos are brilliant cars. Um, <laughs> but let's be honest, it, it does also take some some casualties as well. The last scrappage scheme saw some fantastic classic and maybe not the best condition cars and cars that were sort of becoming classics, retro cars, taken off the road. Now, these are cars that maybe were too far gone to be worth the sort of money that the car's worth a scrappage scheme. If someone said, I'll give you six grand for this car, it's a retro car, it's worth three grand. Too good to scrap, but if it's worth six grand, you take the six grand, don't you? It's a, it's a shame to lose heritage in, in that way. And yes, the last scrappage scheme, uh, I think there were a lot of popular classics that uh, fell into the crusher. But then, mm. you know, well, who's going to miss the odd marina or allegro? They're still parked up and on, on an airfield, actually. If you, if you do a Google and search for scrappage scheme airfield, um, you'll see this. I'm sure there's probably a few out there, but there's some fantastic pictures. There are entire airfields that are just full of, of classic and not-so-classic cars. But they're criminal, and you think, really, what they should do with these cars is allow them to be broken for parts so that they can help keep other similar classic cars going. And perhaps that goes against the, the principles of the scrappage scheme, but let's face it, if you've already built a car, it's far more environmentally friendly to keep it going. And it might, if you've got a car that was built in the 80s, it might take 30 years for it to pay for itself environmentally. But once it has, it has. So why not spread those carbon footsteps? You can have an electric <laughs> car as well. Or if, uh, if there is a big stockpile of cars that have been traded in on the scrappage scheme and, and are still perfectly serviceable and safe and, and running well. I mean, there, there were a couple of cars last time round on the scrappage scheme that we got rid of that were in almost perfect condition you know uh, yeah. m- much as it pains me to say there was a uh, a lovely condition 
Peugeot 406, actually quite a good car and, and some good touring car memories from that. And, and I think it had done 42, 43,000 miles, lovely condition, no damage to it, perfectly safe. It, it had 11 months MOT on it. It was, uh, it was a wonderful bit of kit and, and that went off to be cute, but that would have made somebody a, a wonderful first car or a very good family car for a couple of years. And it's a bit of a shame, really. So if, if there's still life left in a car, then, mm. um, then, yeah, as you say, either broken for parts so it can help keep others running or donated to somebody that needs it. You know, if somebody's on a bit of hard times, lost their job or whatever, had to give up their car, need a car to get around, you know, why, why not? That, that sort of touches on a story I heard earlier this week, that suddenly there's this, a huge boom in the market for sub-9,000-pound cars, uh, and the used car market has gone up by 160 170%. Suddenly, there's a lot of people buying sub nine grand cars because they seem to be taking the view. So, uh, uh, the head of one large uh, used car group of garages suggested people are taking the view that they haven't the money to invest, they might as well buy something now that they can afford and rely upon it for two or three years and then move on from there. So, see uh, that that sub nine or eight, nine, ten thousand pound mark for a vehicle is is kind of risky territory really, I, I think. Agree. Because uh, so many new cars unless we're talking something that was a reasonable price to start off with, maybe a um uh, a KA or similar, you know, a KA a nine double nine five is uh, is only going to be a few months old, maybe six, seven, eight months old. But um, th- that eight, nine, ten grand mark, I, I think, is so risky. If by the time a car's old enough and done enough mileage from a new list price of twenty five, thirty thousand pounds, which let's face it, a lot of cars are these days. Yeah, normal family hatchback. Yeah, and, and you yeah. can pay over twenty over twenty thousand pounds for a fiesta if you feel so inclined and mm-hmm. a, uh, a nicely spec focus is around about thirty thousand pounds. But it uh, it takes a long time for that to depreciate to that nine thousand pound mark, by which time it's it's old enough and done enough mileage that the manufacturer's warranty has expired and components are maybe starting to get a bit tired i for, for me i think seven eight nine ten thousand pounds is a is a lot of liability you've put too much money into it and if something goes wrong with it then you've you've put too much money into it by buying it to to just throw it away uh, exactly so I, I mean for, for me personally I'd, I'd always be tempted to go new or nearly new with with a good balance of some manufacturer's warranty to it uh, or mm. right at the cheaper end of the market, you know, sub two thousand pound plus one, two, three, four, five, yep. maybe six thousand pounds, with without too much in the middle. I must admit. Yeah, I have to admit, I'm I'm the same. I think if you're going to, you either need to go relatively new, um, or go a couple of grand, or if it's something that you really want, then you have to accept the fact you're going to end up having to fix it, or potentially have to fix it. So you can go out there and you can buy a very nice. Jaguar XF, which is a car I really like. It's a bit wafty, but I st- it's one of those cars that when I drove it to begin, genuinely felt quite special to me. I thought it was really, really interesting. And I, I liked I liked the foldy-up vents, which I believe they've now lost, actually. And the rise of the little tower used to rise up at the, uh, the centre console with the gear selector, which is more common these days anyway. But I, I, I digress, unusually for me. Great car, you can spend 10 grand on it. But if something goes wrong, you could be spending a lot of money. Um, and it's the same, you can buy a 10 grand Range Rover if you want to. But when when it goes wrong, are oh, you talking a £1,000 a time? Yeah, you know, it, these, it, it's, a, it's a difficult thing, you know, what what do you do? 
you're paying around about ten thousand pounds or, or even less, I know a, a friend of mine paid around about five six thousand pounds for a card that was a hundred and eighteen thousand pounds when it was brand new, uh, and and this particular example had only done fifty or sixty thousand miles when he bought it. Um, that that just shows you how much value had, uh, had oozed out of it. But the the running costs associated with the car were in line with a car costing £118,000. It had £118,000 worth of bits in it and on it when it was built, uh, so it's all relative, whereas the, the Fiesta is that much cheaper to start off with. I was just... Um, this was A bit, uh, bit of mid-pod research here. Uh, exactly, to illustrate a point from a recent... Um, and I can't find it now, but this was a, a DB7 sub-10. Really? Uh, yep. That's true. They're, they're going back up in money, the, the db seven. So well, if, if you'd yeah. like to join our Patreon and crowdfunders, so Gates can buy a sub ten thousand pound Aston Martin. <laughs> yes, I like the idea uh, of that. And you'll like this one. This was a two thousand eight Jaguar XF. It's the four point two supercharged SV eight, six grand. Ooh, that's madness. That'd be madness. economical to run as well. One hundred seventeen thousand on the clock. That was uh, Bonham's MPH XK eight. So interested in ocean going liability. <laughs> Yeah, you, you pays your money, you takes your chances. Yeah, I mean, having said all of that, of course, you add it up, and it, let's face it, cars are somewhere between reasonable amounts of money per month, or a lot of money per month, or not a lot of money per month. And you you can have something that was more expensive when it was brand new. You can buy it when it's second hand and a bit cheaper. But just make sure you budget and put aside a bit of money every month for uh, for repairs and maintenance to keep it going, or you can pay a fixed amount per month normally on a, a finance agreement or similar and have something newer and, and less worry. But above all, buy whatever makes you happy and whatever makes you smile because recent events have taught us that life's too short. So do whatever you want to do, but make sure it Life's too happy. short to drive boring cars. I think that's enough digression and talking about the news. Let's talk about something else. Four-wheel drive cars. So we've obviously got four-wheel drive 4x4s, but four-wheel drive cars. Cars that have a, a transmission that's been fitted to them that perhaps may not have been there to begin. So it might have been a two-wheel drive car, like, let's talk about the Escort Cosworth, for example, or Genesis, the Audi Quattro. Now, I'm a fan of four-wheel drive cars. Admittedly, they can be a bit understeery. I know that you, Jim, you're a fan of rear-wheel drive. Graham, what do you think? I like four-wheel drive cars. Uh, you mentioned the Escort Cosworth. I drove one at Silverstone. And I, I came back in and said, it's very twitchy, isn't it? And uh, the, the guy from Ford who was there said, it's supposed to be. <laughs> you know, it, it, was, it was intended to be a, a rally car, and that's what it was designed for. And the fact that it was a car that you had to be on constantly... So, yes, it needed to be four-wheel drive to just keep you on the tarmac. But a fascinating drive. Coming on to a slightly more sober version, the Sierra Cosworth Sapphire was an absolutely delightful car with four-wheel capability and all of the other Cosworth capabilities it, it, it carried. But it was, it was nevertheless, it was a very, very quick, very stable family car. So, yeah, I'm, I'm wedded to the idea of all-wheel drive, four-wheel drive, 4x4 means something slightly different and is more Andrew's neck of the woods because um, he's our resident uh, Land Rover, Range Rover 
and Mudman. Filthy. <laughs> well, yeah. Uh, well, the thing is, Sierra Cosworth, the, the whale tail Cosworth is, is iconic, isn't it? Let's be honest. Two-wheel drive, bit of a hooligan machine. I, yes. And people shoot me for this. I actually prefer the, the taxi, in inverted uh, commas, taxi variant of, of the Cosworth. And I really like the, the four-wheel drive Sierra Sapphire. I thought it was an absolutely brilliant car, incredibly stable, even at, at high speeds. I've driven uh, a few that have been sort of high 300s, 400 uh, brake horsepower. And at that sort of power, they do really shift. Um, I've been blowing gearboxes up and things. I remember being out and about with someone who had a, a quaff box and blew third gear under a, under a heavy launch, which I think is pretty impressive. It's pretty expensive too. Yeah, he, ch- he ends up changing it for a straight-cut barrel box. I think he took a loan out to pay for it. Which, which just shows the dedication that some people have to their cars, but I, I think they're brilliant. Generally, really capable. The the RS was was I say four wheel drive. That was an all wheel drive car, absolutely superb. Very very clever um, diff, twinster diff, which is the same as the one you get in the the Range Rover Evoque, albeit tuned up. So you go into a bend hard, accelerate, and and pitch it in, and it would put power. If you're turning right, it puts power to the back left to push you round the corner, like nothing else really I'd ever driven except for maybe um, a GTR, which has a, a similar sort of feel. But absolutely incredible the way that they were able to use that to push you around a corner. That also could be a bit twitchy when you put your foot down. We really should clarify the difference between, because the, 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 there's sort of some blurring of the terminology between four-wheel drive, all-wheel drive, permanently engaged four-wheel drive, selectable, etc., uh, etc. Et I mean, you know, does somebody want to pitch in and try and explain where those terms are different and why, in fact, they're the same. I will try and do this incredibly quickly, and if you think I'm wrong, by all means, right, just at the normal address. Four-wheel drive, generally speaking, um, refers to anything that has a permanent four-wheel drive system connected. So where the front wheels and back wheels go pretty much all the time, possibly with a locking differential. That's another subject. We'll come back to another time. All-wheel drive cars, generally speaking, are cars that will either power the front or rear wheels or all four wheels, but not necessarily all of them all the time, which is more fuel efficient and perhaps has some performance advantages apart from anything else. And when it comes to a permanent four-wheel drive or switchable four-wheel drive, like something in a Ranger or, I don't know, permanent four-wheel drive in an old Land Rover, for example, let's, let's, let's take that again, or an old Jeep. Uh, that is something that would generally run all four wheels pretty much all of the time i think it's fair to say without going into too much detail we know that there are going to be some exceptions we know that there will be some other versions but it's just not really that exciting um to go into any further detail so i think that pretty much covers it gents do we agree yeah i think you've pretty much nailed the confusion i think i think that's one of the reasons i like rear wheel drive it's just simpler it's just easier <laughs> are you saying that you are simpler or just easier <laughs> I'm easier, yes. Well, I think, <laughs> and sometimes when it comes to these things, that is great. What I like about four-wheel drive is that if you go out in, in the snow or in pretty much any condition, the wet, four-wheel drive is, is, is better. Rear-wheel drive is, is always going to be better in, I say always going to be better, generally always going to be better in the dry on a nice piece of tarmac. It's pretty good. You can put your foot down as well and you can do skids, which is great. Front-wheel drive is great fun, lift-off um, lift oversteer is great fun, but if you get it wrong and you're just understeering like crazy, you go headfirst into a tree. But with, with all-wheel drive, you, generally speaking, can put the power down. It's not necessarily as exciting, let's be honest, but it is probably a quicker way of getting to most places, and it's certainly the quickest way of launching a car at speed. Yeah, I'll go with that. Yes. 
Well, you mentioned your Focus RS, normally front-wheel drive, but the uh, the RS version made all-wheel drive. I mentioned the Quattro. Do any other cars have four-wheel drive or all-wheel drive versions that you can only tell by the badge on the back? I mean, we've got BMW's X-Drive system, haven't we? Yep, we got the yeah the BMW X-Drive. Bizarrely, Ford did a four-wheel drive Galaxy RS Max or something, which nobody ever bought, as far as I can tell. Well, they do, like yes. Mondeo. No, did do? Still do. Did do. No, they stopped doing it, didn't they? You still get a four-wheel drive, can buy a four-wheel drive Porsche. I mean, that's a rear-wheel drive car with all the handling characteristics of a rear-wheel rear-engine car, but that's another story. Of most of the models in the last 10, 15 years, there's been a four-wheel drive option, which I think has been switchable in most cases, but perhaps not in all. Isn't the M5 four-wheel drive now? Yes, and the M3. But it is switchable, so you can still be a hooligan when you don't want to be uh, driving around in perhaps one of the fastest barges that uh, the money can buy. 5 Series arguably being probably almost all the car you ever need, except for maybe an RS6, because that has an estate so you can take the dogs out and press the nose up against the glass by accelerating very fast. <laughs> well, I think actually, the I think you maybe hit the nail on the head there, is something like the M5 with all-wheel drive, but you can press a button to make it purely rear wheel drive that is is that the the ultimate solution then so you can have the the traction and the just the easy effortless pace and grip when you need it but if you do want to have fun then flick the switch and off it's you the go. element of choice isn't it yeah i think the thing is with with modern cars the all-wheel drive systems are relatively tunable and sometimes this is the case like in mine if i whack it into dynamic mode it makes it the rear diff more aggressive if it's in a normal mode, it's not. It's just just drives like you would do in any normal car. Uh, and it was the same with the RS. You put it into drift mode, obviously it puts much more power to the back. And it's the same if you put it into track mode. You know, it, it made everything much more lively. So the fact things are tunable now gives you the best of both. Admittedly, with older cars, you could still select and adjust the sharpness of the, the power to the back. And that this was quite often a, a, a more manual process. I, I do quite like four-wheel drive cars i think they get a bit of a bad reputation for being just not proper driver cars because they're not real wheel drive but actually <laughs> if you're going to be driving them every day we want to be driving fast four-wheel drive makes a lot of sense rear wheel drive makes a lot of sense if you want to have a lot of fun but that said some of my favorite cars i've ever driven have been front-wheel drive cars jesper's t being one of the mini being another i think brilliant front-wheel drivers and and there are others out there and certainly there are companies that that prove that they can be done really well. Renault, uh, as an example of this, with the the Renault Sport vehicles, again front wheel drive, again phenomenal fun. Yeah, I think I think a lot of it is down to uh, technique as well as you say the Fiesta ST uh, or our little track car. You know, you drive it to the chassis and to the conditions and, and what you've got underneath you, don't you? So you can have just as much fun in our front wheel drive Fiesta as you can in a rear wheel drive, let's say old school M5 or a, a new school. All-wheel drive M5. It's uh, it's just about driving the the wheels off what's underneath you, isn't it? Yes, and in, in appropriate places. Going back to what we were talking earlier, it's it, 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 yes, in a track car, you're just going to push it as hard as you can. On track, you can do that. On the road, you can't. I think if I was driving an M5, arguably, I probably would have more fun than our uh, 13-year-old Fiesta. However, the difference is that the Fiesta owes us a hundred quid. Whereas an M5 most certainly wouldn't. Um, so, yeah, you, you can probably have a lot more fun just, just by the nature of the fact that 
you worry less. You you, know, you can pitch in at speed, lift off, adjust on the throttle, and let the back end come round on on the lift of oversteer. And it's that it is superb fun for that. It is just playful. It's a joyous thing. And the other thing is with a, a four wheel drive system, I will just add this in. There are it's not all pros. They they are generally heavy. You do generally lose power, um, and you can feel it. Some of the the, the more modern hyper hatches, so the the Golf Far being a, a similar. Uh, well, it's the same car as an S3. If you look at an AMG A45 or A35 um, or, or other cars of that sort of ill, the hyper hatches that you can buy now, um, they, they are that bit heavier and you can feel the weight. And when you get into something that's lighter and not necessarily as powerful, regardless of whether it's driven from the front or rear, there's an agility that you can get with that that you don't always get with a heavier four-wheel drive car. So it isn't it isn't all winning, but I guess my, my argument, I'm not trying to blow my own argument out of the water here, um, <laughs> but, but there are pros and cons for both. And just because something is front or rear or, or all wheel drive doesn't necessarily mean it's a better or worse drive. Um, there are some, there are brilliant examples of everything out there, but certainly with these older cars, they managed to be four wheel drive and still relatively light. Um, if you think about something like a Sierra Cosworth, think about the weight of a, a Fiesta now, you're not a million miles away from each other. And despite the fact that the, the Sierra was a huge car by standards you know, of, of the 80s, I mean, we have a few other cars that have become very collectible. The Escort RS2000 4x4, not the most exciting car in the world, only about 150 horsepower, but again, that's starting to go up in value. And you've got to cars like the Cavalier Turbo, for those of you with a uh, a, a voxel bent. If you're if you're into your in, into your voxels, then you know, there's not very many of those left. And if you want to believe the likes of how many left online, then there's apparently uh, you know only well less than a handful that, that are on the road, and, and maybe twenty or so. I only discovered recently because I saw one up for auction that there was actually um, slightly after that a Calibra turbo. I think they must have made about three and a half of those. God knows how many there are of them. But certainly very, very small numbers. I like the Calibra, and I liked the slight nice boxes of it. Yeah, maybe. I think possibly dated when it was launched in some ways, but I, I quite like it. Although most of them, let's be honest, have been dismantled for their engines. Because the Vauxhall Red Top engine is a cracking engine that goes well in, in pretty much anything old, like a, a Mark II Escort, for example. Really, the, the C20 let engines, really very, very good, quite strong engines. Respond well to turboing. Recommend that if you fancy uh, something a bit spicy in, in an older car. Good engine. But yeah, again, must be an endangered species. And it sort of makes you wonder of the cars that we, that we used to see a lot of, and particularly cars that are more interesting, how many of these things are left now? Even boring cars, let's face it. How, when was the last time you saw a Mark 1 one day on the road? No, it'd been a long, long time. I, I saw an Austin A40 yesterday, which was the first one of those I've seen in a very long time. But you think about the prevalence of, I don't know, say even in the late, in the late 90s, the Rover 216-214 is the car that everyone's granddad had. And they were everywhere, weren't they? The, the, the ones they built up with Honda. can't remember the last time I saw one of those on the road. I've seen one in the last couple of weeks on a garage forecourt. Really? Oh, getting some petrol. <laughs> oh, yeah, not, not for sale, sorry, misleading you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was going to say, quite surprised if someone was selling one of those. But... It always makes me smile watching, uh, you know, TV sitcoms or dramas or things like that from 
yeah, anywhere from the early 90s onwards up until the, the late 90s, maybe early 2000s, just to see which, which cars are on the road. You know, I was watching an episode of uh, Men Behaving Badly the other day where they're all off to a rave uh, in a Mark II Golf. And a, a hilarious episode, uh, especially at the end uh, where he uh, vomits all over the camera. I always found that scene quite hilarious. But uh, no, all, all out and about in a Mark II Golf, and you think, well, you don't see too many of those anymore. Of course, a few of them bit the dust due to scrappage, but a tidy Mark II Golf, if you can find one, is certainly creeping up in value now. Yeah, indeed. But these cars, you know, they're cars that, that I would say are, are definitely pretty cool now. I mean, certain, I, I don't really mourn the loss of the Maestro or the Tipo or, or anything like that, but yeah, certainly... Certainly, cars like the Mark II Golf are pretty cool. Preludes, there used to be quite a few of those around. Don't see many of them anymore. Yeah, you still see them occasionally. I, I, I know of one or two. Four-wheel steering. Yeah. <laughs> or four-wheel not steering, which was more often, I think, the case with them, which was part of the problem with them, and partly why you see very few of them about. Uh, the fact that they were unpredictable, I think, is to, to say the least. Cars of the 50s, 60s, 70s, and, and probably into the early 80s, Maybe have bitten the dust because of build or reliability issues. Um, as the Japanese manufacturers came in all those years ago, they they taught the the Europeans that actually reliability and, and not rusting away in a matter of months were uh, were important. But of course, those the sort of cars that fell into uh, the hands of boy racers like like myself in my youth, for example, you know, as, as the car drops in value and becomes affordable, it it falls into the hands of uh, people who drive them possibly to a level exceeding their talent, and, uh, and of course the numbers rapidly, rapidly drop, don't they? There's actually, that's just reminding me of a story of uh, all of the newspaper headlines at the time, the Lotus Carlton, uh, when that came out. And, and you know, that was, that was going to fall into the hands of hooligans and would depreciate so rapidly and so on and so on and so on. And most people who bought one of those, and you know, they didn't sell many, but most people that bought one of those either drove them briefly and then put them away or just put them away. And to buy one these days is, is a serious amount of money if one comes on the market. I doubt if I've seen more than two in the last couple of years actually come to the market. There's got to be less than 50 of these things left now. I remember a friend of mine had one of these and the clutch went. And for some reason, you couldn't get the clutches anymore. And it was cheaper at the time to buy another one and take the clutch out of it than it, than it was supposedly. This is this could be one of these urban myth stories that you're told when you're a kid, you know, you're young and naive and, and watching people handbrake turn round on McDonald's trays around a car park uh, in a G-Reg Fiesta. Um, but supposedly cheaper to, to buy an old doggy one of those with a decent clutch as well, the clutch over. I can't ever remember them being that cheap, to be completely honest with you. I can only remember them being very fast. I can also remember a friend of a friend losing his licence after being caught doing 140 miles an hour down the A27. Um, because he decided to to stop, as you would obviously rightly do, if you're being followed by a police officer and he told you to stop and you're doing 140 miles an hour, you absolutely wouldn't just go for it um, and wait to be pulled over. It's a very good likelihood that he can drive rather faster, rather better and rather more effectively than, than you can. And I use the, the you in a generic sense because uh, those those traffic guys are, uh, A, their, their skill level is very high, uh, their training is quite extraordinarily high, and they have some very, very quick motor cars. This is entirely true, and certainly now the pursuit vehicles are, are far better than ever were. But let's face it, there's not much to catch up with, with a Lotus Carlton, 
and there is that story of a gang who went round committing robberies. They got more and more brazen uh, each time, getting closer and closer, and decided to, to carry out a robbery just opposite the police station. Still managed to get away uh, from the police just due to the pure speed. There's some fantastic videos. And you can just you can see the camera on board the police car, and all of a sudden he just puts his foot down and just becomes a, a dot in the distance. They were outrageously fast to the point um, where they became topic of conversation in Parliament as to whether or not they should be banned, or whether manufacturers should be banned from making cars that would go that fast because it was deemed irresponsible for them to make it. And there's been the same argument again about this RS6 that was caught speeding recently. I was reading a comment that someone said, oh, you know, the manufacturers should be done for this. You know, well, no, why should they be? Because it's not down to the manufacturer how fast you decide to drive. It's, designed, it's down to the idiot who sat behind the wheel. Um, exactly. you, know, you can jump, you can jump sure. in your car. You know, Jim, you could be firing off down, down the motorway at Zoomia and a limited 155 miles an hour because that's what they seem to be. If you wanted to, you wouldn't do it because you're not a tit. You know, and, and obviously, uh, Andrew presumably could be doing the same at around... 98 miles an hour or something similar. I'm joking. <laughs> I am joking. With, with enough of a run-up, three, three laps of the M25, you'd be there. But no, it's, as you say, it's the, it's the, uh, the inappropriate application of speed because, you know, you get, even if you limited every car to, uh, or plenty of commercial vehicles these days are limited to 55 or um, smaller commercial vehicles limited to 70, 74 miles an hour. But if you drove past a, a school, on a, a wet Tuesday morning at 74 miles an hour. That's completely and utterly irresponsible, but the manufacturer's done its thing to, to put the speed limit on. So, uh, no, it's, it's an absolute joke to suggest that's anything to do with the manufacturers or, or that power should be reined in at all. All these things are relative. I mean, I was, I was overtaken in a uh, country village this afternoon by a Range Rover who was, I would guess, doing 45 to 50 uh, and I'm usually reasonably accurate on, on speed. And I was doing 30. I'd got the cruise control set for 30 because I knew that village was narrow and parking both sides, etc., etc. Cruise control at 30. So regardless of how narrow it gets, you're doing 30. No, no, no. But I, it, I, I will set the cruise control in speed limits, uh, 30 speed limits quite often because that's the way I use to, to, to stick to it. Uh, uh, Ringmer particularly, which is a favourite nicking spot because it's just down the road from Sussex Police Headquarters. So, you know, as soon as I drive into Ringmer, I will set straight away the, um, the cruise control for 30. Then I haven't got to worry about it. I, have to admit, I do the same thing, although I've realised that if you do that, it turns all your traction control and ESP and stuff back on. That's the first thing. And secondly, if you hit a bump, it turns it off which is really irritating. And I think they do it so if you hit standing water, it disengages the cruise control as well, so it doesn't just try and power you through a sort of hydroplane off the uh, side of the road. <laughs> I would like to take this moment just to apologise to everyone who's been listening and suddenly thought, well, Mike suddenly sounds worse than he normally does because somehow or another managed to stop recording this. I'm not quite sure how that happened, but it happened for approximately 15 minutes, which hopefully due to some editing skills you may or may not notice. But if you do... My apologies, it was me. Um, I have no idea what happened. Let's just assume I'm a tit. Moving on, I had a, a very sad email, although not, not an unexpected email today, announcing Goodwood Festival of Speed and Goodwood Revival, both both cancelled this year, so not postponed, not, not hoping to reschedule, but 
completely and utterly off the table, which is um, understandable, certainly not unexpected. Uh, I had a letter from the Duke about a week or so ago, but he was saying at that stage he was hopeful it would all go ahead. Um, and I am, uh, I have to say, deeply disappointed that it's not, because it, it is uh, one of my all-time favourite events, but uh, there you go. If it can't be, it can't be. So I was very much looking forward to a, a bit of Goodwood later on this year, but there's, uh, I think, Gates, there's one or two things we have got coming up on the horizon to keep us interested. The good news is that there are still some motoring events, hopefully, uh, going to be going ahead before the end of the year. Actually, as early as August, uh, there's the uh, London Concourse, um, which it describes itself as a popular event, which is, which is good news. It's kind of what we hope. Something that hopefully will go ahead is the NEC Classic Motor Show. Now, that is in November. It's one of those which is actually a great show to go to anyway, if you fancy a bit of a trip up or if you're in that area. It's on 13th to the 15th of November. There are going to be classics, going to be some American stuff, and there are going to be some, some British stuff in there. There's going to be a bit of everything in there. And actually, I think, considering everything that's been going on, I love the idea of being able to get up see some of these cars, have a bit of normality and, and just enjoy it. We've got the London to Brighton mini run coming up as well. That's going to be in October, assuming they don't shut Madeira Drive for good, which is something that the Brighton Council are looking to do because they've quite enjoyed shutting it down. Obviously, we've got the veteran car run as well. Yeah, well, that's a little uncertain at the moment. They're not committing themselves. Uh, I had an email from them two or three days ago. So they're hopeful of going ahead. Um, and it's normally around November 5th, I think, isn't it? So, in summary, if you want something to do towards the end of the year, you've got the London to Brighton Mini Run, you may or may not have the London to Brighton Veteran Car Run, depending on whether, A, they decide to close Madeira Drive for good, and, B, whether they manage to get themselves a date together and are able to commit to it, because there's nothing better than enjoying a load of people who are so hardy that they can drive a car which is, let's face it, very slow and, generally speaking, very much open to the elements, in freezing cold weather and to be honest with you i would be very tempted just to say you know i think we'll move it to the summer next year just just for the sake of variety um (laughs) i I appreciate that maybe it's not quite the spirit of the thing but to be honest i think i could probably settle for that but of course yes then they might overheat instead a lot of them overheat anyway (laughs) (laughs) so fingers crossed we're going to see more proper motorsport whether we're allowed to be there or not we're going to see hopefully some more car shows and car runs towards the end of the year and it would be really nice to have something to look forward to when it comes to this so we're keeping everything crossed even our eyes we will be out there covering it and uh, bringing you as much coverage as we can of all of these events and graham's going to be visiting each of these events and getting us (laughs) (laughs) i'm certainly going to go to some of them without a doubt I think, to be honest, after all this, we've really got to get out there and in, enjoy this. And at the very least, hopefully we'll get to enjoy a little track car because now you can get out, use the, the, the tracks and the circuits, and uh, at least that's something. So something to look forward to. Really hope that you guys are all out there staying safe, staying well, staying two metres apart from each other, and generally all OK. It's been really great to chat to you again, and we look forward to speaking to you again next time. Stay safe, and from me, it's cheerio. Good night, all. Take care. Look after yourselves. Bye-bye now. UK Motor Talk, a first-take media production.